This morning, as I, as I prepared for the message, it's a message that I wanted to really, in, in a way, craft towards Holly and to Taylor as they are beginning this new part of the journey in the life of faith. But it's not just for them. I believe it's a message for me. It's a message for you. It's a message for all of us. So let's bow our heads and pray as we prepare our hearts for that. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you woke us up this morning. We want to thank you that you brought us to this place. And so as we open up your word, it's my prayer that you would silence all of those other distractions in our, in our minds, all of the things we're worried about, all of the anxieties, even the things that we're super excited about. I pray that you would help us to be fully present to your spirit now, and as we read these words, may you use them to shape our understanding of who you are, to shape our understanding of how you see us. So may the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be appeasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever noticed how adorable most babies are. All babies, I suppose. That sounded really badly. So sorry. I meant me. I wasn't adorable. <laughs> but they're adorable, right? And, and the chubbier a baby is, the more cute and cuddly they are, right? So the chubbier the baby is, you just want to like hug them and squeeze them as tight as possible, but you can't because we don't want to squeeze babies too tight because that's, you know, something bad will happen to them. So a couple of weeks ago, as you know, I had my, my annual vacation and I went to New York. And this year at New York, there was a, an addition. There was something different that was happening. So every year I go and for two weeks, I kind of sit by myself for eight hours a day and no one bothers me. And I just sit there and I read, I try to write, I take a walk, I go for a run, whatever. And it's just this quiet time of silence and centering. This year was different because this year my brother and his wife have a nine-month-old baby. So I thought to myself, she's probably at daycare, whatever, it's going to be good. <laughs> Add to the story, now my mom is coming with us. That's cool. Like, I love my mom. I'm going to hang out with her. We're going to have a good time. So the plan was mom's going to take care of Isabel and I get to do what I do on every single vacation. Here's the problem. Out of some weird, miraculous, never again gonna happen, my niece decided to take a liking to me. Now, none of my other nieces and nephews have ever wanted to spend time with me when they're babies. Like, they're afraid of me, they cry. Some of the babies in the church try to cry when they were little and I try to pick them up, so I'm just repellent against babies, so. And what would happen is every single time I would walk past her eyesight, she would extend her hands out to me. I know, I just wanted to show you a picture of her. That's the whole sermon, no, I'm just kidding. And um, I'm excited because this has never, ever happened to me. So any time I would walk by, she would extend her arms, and I don't know if it's because I'm a good uncle or it was stroking my ego, but every single time I went and I lifted her up. I mean, she would, she would come to me when my mom was taking care of her. She would come to me when her dad was taking care of her. I mean, like, I was it. So I was a babysitter. There was no vacation. That was my vacation. <laughs> Everything went out. The, that's what I did for eight hours a day. But something interesting happened. When dad came home, she would go give him a hug, right, like in baby language. She would, you know. But then she would always come back to me. It was weird. 
But as soon as mom came home, all bets were off. <laughs> as soon as mom came home, because she's the one with the food, she would extend her arms to her, and then she would be with her most of the night. Because there's a connection that mothers and babies have that no one else has. It's, it's this sense of this original knowing. It's, it's for children, they know that when they are in their mother's arms, that when their mother's gaze is upon them, they are safe and secure. They don't know about anything else that's going on in the world. They don't care about sports. They don't care about money. They don't care about cars. Babies don't care about anything. All they care about is that they feel safe in their mother's arms. It's this kinesthetic way of knowing or being known. Children are known by their mothers, and they feel safe. Now, I was reading, and it says that this is true up until about the age of about, oh, wrong one, of about two years old, at which point the child then begins to kind of break away from mom and dad, not necessarily break away from them, but they begin to experience the world in a little bit of a different way. They begin to talk, they begin to see things differently, and, and in a sense, they are becoming, in some small ways, their own. And so this kind of intrinsic and, and kinesthetic knowing between the mom and the child begins to kind of break away a little bit, and so because a child can't always be in their mother's arms, they begin to take these things, these kinds of security blankets or teddy bears or some other sort of object that, in a sense, links them back to that original knowing, to that original safety. So they have these security blankets. They're like these little anchors that help them to feel safe. But as adults, it's the same way for us. I believe that we were all created and at birth there is not only that knowing between our, our parents and ourselves and our mother, but rather there is this, this kinesthetic, this knowing, this spiritual connection that draws you and, and I to God. But as life goes on and, and sometimes as children as we begin to take our eyes off of God, instead of making God the anchor of our life, the thing that makes us secure and firm and gives us hope, sometimes we begin to use other things as security blankets. Being debt-free is something that we all wanna be and that becomes a security blanket. If only I could be debt-free, then I will be happy. If only I can get married, if only I will have children, if only I can live in this house, or if only, right? We have these lives of if only and we grab onto these things that that become anchors in our lives. But no matter how good those things are, they can never be the anchor that replaces God. Because even if your anchor becomes your children or your parents or your relationships or your spouses, there is gonna be a day where they aren't having a good day and they may sink. And they may not be there for you. And we can't make things our anchors. Financial freedom can't be an anchor. Jobs can't be an anchor. Money can't be an anchor. Things can't be anchors because those things have no soul. And so the question that I want you to wrestle with today and hopefully throughout the rest of the week and, and hopefully for the rest of your life is what is the anchor of your life? Is it truly the anchor that you were born with within your soul that is this anchor that which is God who will always give you hope and always get you through? Or is it something else? So I want to draw your attention to a scripture in, in Hebrews chapter 6. So this is a bigger part of a bigger narrative. Uh, I, I mean, we, couldn't probably, we probably couldn't read four chapters in church. I might lose some of us this morning. So I'm going to try to do the best I can to fill in what's going on. 
So here's what's happening. I'm going to read this. When God desired to show even more clearly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God is making a promise. And it's an unchangeable promise, right? God wants to make it so clear to the heirs. Now, an heir is a, in our, in our world, an heir is a child, right? So if you are an heir of your parents, you get some sort of inheritance usually, if, if there's an inheritance to be had. So Jesus is saying that God is the father of all of us. And as believers, as those who have submitted our lives and accepted Christ, we are heirs. We are children of this promise, of this inheritance that God is going to give you. And he says, just so that God could make it so evidently clear, he is taking an oath. Now, God doesn't take oaths like we do, right? Well, we usually say, you know, I swear, and, and then you always have a Christian friend with you that says, no, we're not supposed to swear, right? <laughs> Some of you are that friend. But so God's not making that kind of an oath. When the Bible says that God is making an oath, what it's saying is that God is making a promise that is sure. God is giving his word that what he's about to say will come to pass. So he's making this promise to you and to me this morning. So that we who have taken refuge, so those who are believers, might be strongly encouraged to seize the hope that is set before us. So he's about to explain to us what this hope is. We have this hope, a sure and steadfast, or firm and secure, anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner shrine behind the curtain. I want to stop there for a second. We have this hope, a firm and secure anchor for our soul. Every one of you has an anchor for your soul. Every one of you is latching on to something that you think is giving you safety and security and stability. I've already gone through the list of what they might be in your life. They might be something that I didn't even put in there. But anything that you make an anchor for your soul that isn't God will ultimately stop working as an anchor. It doesn't mean that we can't count on our friends and spouses and families and parents it doesn't mean that we can't count on getting that paycheck and being debt-free is always a good idea. Those are all good and great things. But those are no things to anchor our souls. Those are no things to base our entire life on. The Bible tells us that when man was created, God breathed his breath into them. And in many ways, God makes his home within our hearts and within our souls. He tells us we have this home this anchor. We have this hope that is sure and secure. Now, here's the thing. An anchor, it's a stabilizing force, right? It's the thing that keeps you docked or wherever, when you're in shallower water where it goes far enough. It's the thing that keeps your boat afloat, and it's the thing that keeps you where you're supposed to be. Without an anchor, there's a danger of you drifting. Now, here's the interesting part about the anchor. Anchors are most effective when they are not seen. If an anchor is on your boat, it's not doing anything, right? Like we've seen them, they're like sticking out of the side of the boat. They're not doing anything. But when you drop them in the water is when you no longer see them. And it's in those moments that anchors become their most useful. 
The Bible tells us that no matter what happens in your life, and, and I don't know why these sermons keep coming up this way, right, where we keep talking about how even though we can't fully see God with our eyes, we know that he's there. So the anchor that is God works the very best even though we don't see him with our eyes. Because we don't see God with our eyes. We see God with the eyes of our soul. There is that deeper knowing I've never seen Jesus in real life. And it's probably better that I haven't. Because if we look at the stories in the Bible, for the people who did see Jesus, they didn't really believe in him. So we have this blessing that we have the stories and the truth of who Jesus is, and it is to that that we can anchor our souls and anchor our lives. Some of you may be saying, but you don't know the things that are going on in my life. You don't know the waves or the storms. You don't know the uncertainty that I'm facing. You don't Oh, and that's probably true. But what the Bible does promise and what God is making clear here, his unchangeable purpose, he is making a promise that if you latch on to the right anchor, no matter what happens or what experiences you have in your life, you will be okay. You see, what's interesting is as Christians, and I think I've prayed this prayer so many times, and I'll be honest, I probably still pray it often, when we're going through difficult times in our lives, what do we always say? God, please just help me to get through this already. Can you just kind of come and take this away from me or change this or, or do one of those miracles like, you know, parting the Red Sea. Make one of those miracles happen in my life now. That's the prayers we sometimes pray. But the Bible tells us that God isn't going to send some heavenly helicopter from heaven to rescue us out of the storm. Instead, God gives you the anchor. He becomes the anchor to hunker down through the storm, because it's through the difficult times in your life that your faith actually grows. It is through the difficulty and the uncertainty and, and what the Bible writers use as this metaphor of wilderness, of unknowing, of darkness. It is in those moments that your faith grows the most. I bet I wish most of us wish it weren't that way. Our faith should grow just by reading the Bible or praying, and, and there's a place for that. But your faith grows often when you go through times of testing and temptation. Faith means we don't have to see what's right in front of us. Hebrews 11, verse 1, says, Faith is the assurance of the things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of our hope. What Hebrews tells us is our hope is God. He is our anchor. He is the assurance that even though we may not fully see the anchor, which is God, he is present and he will help you. It's the conviction of the things that are not seen. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, there are these images of people who feel that God has forgotten them, that God has forsaken them. In the Old Testament, there is this, this metaphor of exile the Israelites, the children of God, would often go, not often, but they went into exile because they followed after their own desires, their own wills, their, they, they followed after other gods, and God didn't punish them. He just says, fine, if this is what you want to do, go and do your thing. Fine, I'll allow it. Go ahead. You don't want to follow my way? Fine, do what you want to do. And so it leads them into what we call exile. They're taken from their homeland. They're, dis they're dispersed all over the kingdoms. And it was during those times of uncertainty and darkness that the Israelites said, our God surely must have forgotten us. Where is that God that rescued us from Egypt? And here's what they say in Isaiah. 
But Zion, that's the city of God. That's, it's symbolic for the children of God, so believers. This, this might even be for us. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Again, they have come to this time of uncertainty and unknowing, and instead of going to the Lord, instead of submitting to God and saying, okay, God, instead of me complaining, just teach me what you are needing me to learn now. As I go through this, right, when, when tough times go, come in your life. You don't want to waste them by just trying to rush through them. Instead, the, the, perhaps the right posture to have is, Lord, teach me what you're trying to teach me as I go through this darkness. Nothing is wasted in life. No experience is wasted. Everything is a part of our learning and our growth and our faith. So the Israelites are saying, our God has forgotten us. Our God has forsaken us. To which God answers this. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? So he's saying, you think I have forgotten you, but does a mother forget her child? Can she ever forget or show no compassion for the child of her womb? He says, even these may forget. So maybe they will. Maybe this happens. Maybe this has happened to some of us. But I will not forget you. You see, we living in the Western world in 2015, if we can't see it, if we can't verify it, if there is no logical facts behind something, then it's hard for us to accept it. That's how we live, right? All through school, there is a right answer for everything, right? You know, because if you have the, right an- the wrong answer, you lose points on the test, especially in math, right? How many of us ever got Fs? Not me. No, I'm just kidding. Huh. That's horrible in math. That's why I'm a pastor. But... The, the truth is, is that in life, everything is verifiable. We want logical proof for, anything, for everything. And people will say, well, I don't really believe in God because you can't prove that he exists, which is true. We can't prove that God exists. There's no formula you can give. But you also can't prove that God doesn't exist. So it's kind of like, okay, well, prove to me he doesn't, right? So you don't have to prove. But the truth is, is that we don't have to see him with our eyes. I know I'm repeating myself, but we don't have to see God with our eyes to know that he is there. Because he is often at work in the greatest ways when the anchor isn't seen. So as you experience life, don't waste the experiences where God is using them to teach you and help your faith grow. God says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands and your walls are continually before me. So the metaphor of Zion is a city. It's the metaphor for God's people. So when he uses the word, the walls are continually before me, he's basically saying, not only have I inscribed your names on my hands, in the sense of God's metaphor of all things are in God's hands, and I will always be vigilant over you. You don't have to make sense of everything. You don't have to have answers for everything. But what is crucially important is that you know that you are in the hands of God. There is no better promise. There is no better news than knowing that God cares and is intimately involved in your life. And I want to end with this last passage. It's a mix of two Bible verses. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and Jesus knows that he's going to be arrested. Jesus knows that he'll be going to his death. So he's preparing his his 12 disciples. He's getting them ready for when he's no longer there. And he says this, he's saying, I'm going to send someone, and and this is the spirit of truth, whom the world, or people who don't believe, cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. So believers aren't going to know the spirit because they're not paying attention. 
But you know the Spirit because He abides where? With you, and He will be in you. When you look in the mirror, what do you see? Do you see all of the negative things, all of the reasons why you're not good enough, not beautiful enough, not smart enough, not faithful enough? Or when you look in the mirror, do you see that you were made in the beautiful image of the God who creates all things? Do you not know that if you have opened your heart to the Lord, that he abides? That's a Bible way of saying that he lives. He makes his home with you and he will be in you. This is not the David O'Segara translation of Scripture, right? This is Scripture. This is telling us this is who you are. The God who creates all things isn't somewhere far away in a galaxy far beyond anything we could comprehend. Why would God choose to be somewhere distant if he loves us as the Bible tells us he does? For how many of you, to give you a, a, a human analogy... For how many of you, if you love someone, are you going to say, but I'm going to move to Florida? I don't know. But they live in Orange. You wouldn't do that. No, you would say, come with me or go with me or I'll stay and live under a bridge. But as long as we can be close, I will be with you. And I think that's the best metaphor that we could understand for the love that God has for us. He's like, why am I going to be in a galaxy far away? Okay, true, I'm God. Even if I live far away, because I'm God, I could still somehow be present here. So I get that, right? But God says, no, he, he doesn't make those caveats. He doesn't make those explanations. He says, I am a God who lives within you. The Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies house the divine spark the God who says, I will be with you. And the last verse says this. Nope, that, that was the last verse. <laughs> the last verse says, in a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. And because I live, you also will live the fullness of life. On that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So you see, when we talk about being people of faith, it doesn't mean that we are people that go to church. It doesn't just mean that we're people that go to church. It doesn't just mean that we've given our lives to Jesus. But when it says that we are people of faith, what we're saying is that we don't have to make sense of everything. Everything doesn't have to make logical sense. What we're saying is that because we are a people of faith, we believe that our names and our lives are in the hands of a God who actually cares for us. A God who doesn't choose to be somewhere in a faraway place, but a God who has given us the promise that he will be in us and that we will have access to the power of the God who creates all things. And so for Taylor and for Horner, as you begin this journey, know that God is intimately involved in your life. And there will undoubtedly be times when you won't feel like that's true. There will be times when you will ask, why have you forgotten me? Where are you now? But perhaps it's in those times where we can turn and open our souls and our hearts 
and say, God, just teach me, form me, and may your will be done in my life. But this message isn't just for them. It's for every single one of us who are here. For those of us who have been Christians our entire life, we struggle with this every day. Some of us struggle more than others. And it doesn't make you a bad Christian if you struggle with it. It just means that we're on a journey and we're on a process of learning. I'll close with this. Jesus, as he's kind of wrapping up his teachings to his disciples, he says, eternal life is knowing God and Jesus whom he sent to this world. Eternal life isn't just for some time in the future in the heavens, but eternal life is beginning that life, the beginning that relationship with Jesus that says today you have access to the power of God. And there probably won't be any heavenly helicopters to rescue you out of the mire, but there will always be an anchor to get you through the roughest storms. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. And we're humbled because, Father, we know that we don't deserve this. But we're thankful that you have given us this hope, that you have given us these promises, and that we know that you are there. So for those of my brothers and sisters who may be wrestling with not being able to fully see you now, I pray, Father, that you would make them aware of the deeper things of faith, that you would make them aware that you are in them and within them, and that their hands are in your and that their lives are in your hands. We pray all this and we claim these promises in the name of Jesus. Amen.